Good evening and welcome to my home. Uh, we are obviously not filming this Bible study in the studio. This is uh, my home studio that uh, I just got done setting up. So uh, hopefully this suffices. Occasionally we will be in here uh, when uh, the studio is just too busy um, or for timing purposes where this works better. So today we're going to be covering Genesis, <laughs> not Genesis. Oh, that's a good start. We finished Genesis. We're in Exodus. Today we're going to be covering Exodus chapter 7. So just for a quick recap, um, Exodus 3 and 4, God calls out Moses, gives him the task ahead of him, the massive one of being his mouthpiece uh, to free the Israelites from the bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, at the very end, um, Moses and his brother Aaron go to Egypt and they go to the, um, the head families uh, of each of the tribes of Israel and they say God's message, that God remembers them and he is going to save them and return them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They believe and they're all excited and they worship God. But then uh, Exodus chapter 5 happens and that is where... Um, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh for the first time and they say, the God of the Hebrews, the Lord, uh, has requested that you release the Hebrews so that they can travel out and worship their God, uh, the God of Israel, the Lord, in the desert. And Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? Who is this God? Uh, I don't know him. I am God. I am Egypt. These are my free labor. These are my slaves. They can't go. No. So then uh, in chapter six, at the end of chapter five, um, Moses then takes that to God and says, God, uh, why did this happen? Why did you bring me here? Um, you have not done what you said you did. Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Uh, you have not done what you said you were going to do. Then last week we covered it in chapter six. Um, God responds to him, and, and join me as we read uh, Exodus 6, uh, 6 through 8. This is God obviously talking to uh, Moses. Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. In chapter 6, God promises to do everything that he said he was going to do. And he reaffirms that I am the Lord and you are going to see mighty acts done. And this will show the Egyptians, this will show Pharaoh, and this will show the Israelites that God is God. I am. The great I am statement from uh, uh, Exodus 3.14. So, um, that's going to be reiterated uh, in Exodus chapter 7. At the end of 6, Moses takes this information back to the Israelites. I forgot to add in in chapter 5, Moses is, excuse me, um, Pharaoh is so upset that they would ask to be let go that he increases their labor drastically. And so the Israelites are not happy with Moses at all and say, why have you come? Why have you, you've put a sword uh, in Pharaoh's hand. 
against us. So Moses in chapter six, as we've discussed, uh, goes to the uh, heads of the families and, and shares what God had told them. And they say um, th th they're not uplifted at all. They don't believe um, the slave masters are being so cruel to them and their labor is so hard they can't see past that. So then God, uh, excuse me, Moses returns and is just doubting. He's clearly doubting at the end of chapter six. And that's where we're going to pick it up in um, verse one of chapter seven. But let's pray first. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the means to be able to do this study. Thank you for um, those who support Iron Sheep Ministries and who have come alongside to help us do this. Um, I pray, Lord, that this message would be a blessing to all those who hear and that you will open our ears, you will soften our hard hearts, which we're going to talk about tonight, um, that we would be open to your message and to who you are and that we would be obedient to you um, the God of creation, the God of Jacob and Isaac um, and Abraham. Praise you, Lord. Speak through me. We dedicate this time to you. Proudest in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Moses uh, at the end of chapter six is still doubting. Since I speak with faltered lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So there's a few things that we need to touch on here. Um, the first one, when I first heard it, it gave me pause. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. That really gave me pause to ask the question, what does that mean? I've made you like God to Pharaoh. As we've discussed um, in Egyptian uh, belief, Pharaoh is um, part divine himself, placed by the gods, part divinity himself. And in his mind, um, he is God. And so what we see here, there's a few things that I want to hit on here is, is that one, God has given Moses the and Aaron the power to do signs and wonders. Um, God has given him that. So in that sense, he is God's representative. He is uh, a mouthpiece for God, as I've said before, but he has God's powers. Now, it is obviously God that's doing these things, and we're going to start to see um, the first plague as well as a sign are going to be um, shown here in the next few verses. And we're going to see that these aren't Moses or Aaron that are performing these. They are doing and going through the motions that God has set forth, and God commands him to do these things, but it is God who is doing them. And, but from Pharaoh's point of view, he sees Aaron and he sees Moses do these things and he, they are going to be like God to uh, Pharaoh. Moses will be like God 
and Aaron will be his prophet. And the idea there is the messenger, so to speak, conveying the words. So in that sense, um, you have uh, Pharaoh who considers himself to be a god, who should be a god to Moses and to Aaron, who is being put in his place by the God, uh, capital G God, the Lord. And that's one view of this. The other view of this is um, a more modern application. We are God's image bearers. Uh, Genesis um, 127, we are image bearers of God. Genesis 127 establishes that God has created us in his image. And that's where you get the foundation for the idea of image bearers. But it's this idea that we as Christians, as followers of God, as God-fearers, whatever you want to call yourself, um, a follower of Christ, it's our job to reflect Christ onto others and, and, and to reflect God. In some instances, you may be a person's only exposure to religion, to Christianity, to God, to who Jesus is, to who God is, you very well might be that only um, interaction that they have. And so to them, you represent God. You are God in that sense, not in the divine sense where you are God Almighty, but no, from the perspective of we are called to represent Christ. Uh, the Great Commission um, is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And so leave a finger here and we're going to go to that. Matthew uh, 28, 18 through 20. To the very end of Matthew's gospel. I'll give you a second to get there. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are called to share the gospel, the good news. And part of that uh, John 14, 12, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. If we believe Christ is who he said he was, then we will replicate his acts. In fact, the term Christian, saying that you're a tiny Christ, is the idea. And the early church adapted that and say, yeah, we are Christ followers. Christ follower being part of the way, um, being called a Christian uh, was originally meant as an insult, uh, but it's perfect because we are meant to be little Christ. We are meant to reflect Christ. Uh, John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So in everything we do, we are called to reflect Christ in every action we have. So how many people know that you're a Christian? If, there's a if there are people who do not know that you work with, etc., how might you, without being obnoxious, without getting fired, without uh, standing up on your desk and screaming at the top of your lungs, uh, repent for the end is near, which is true, uh, 
that doesn't win souls very, very well, does it? Uh, so how can you at work reflect Christ in going that extra mile in doing the deeds that Jesus would have done? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Uh, it's a bracelet that a lot of people wear and it's a very good question. So um, that is what this opening verse, verse one, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. In essence, we are the hands and feet of God. One of the things that I've learned in, in the years of being a Christian is that um, God chooses to act through us, which is amazing and miraculous. He doesn't have to. One person prays for a miracle or prays for something over here, and God could just answer that prayer. But what God does, and this is so cool, and I'm grateful that he does that, is that he has a need over here, and then over here he has a follower who needs to be strengthened in their faith. So he will call out this person, and they will answer this person's prayer. God chooses to work through us. And what ends up happening is this person's faith is strengthened because, well, God answered their prayer. But this person who stood on God's faith or who stood faithful on God and followed what God asked them to do, their faith is now strengthened as well by their action and their deed. And therefore, the, the, the kingdom grows through this. God could intervene and do these miraculous things. And we're going to see, I mean, throughout Scripture, this is what you see. You see God bringing in people uh, to be his hands and feet. Recently in Albany, um, Casting Crowns, the band, uh, came and played at the Palace Theater. And one of their songs, If We Are the Body, look it up, listen to it, If We Are the Body. Uh, it's a, a fascinating song, wonderful song that talks about the fact that if we are the body of Christ, if we are reflecting Christ, if we are his hands and feet, hands and feet, why is the world not changing drastically around us? Why do we not see uh, Christ followers reflecting Christ? It's kind of a, a little bit of a gut check in the song. Uh, I recommend that you listen to it. Okay, um, continuing on past verse one, um, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we've discussed this before, uh, but what I ended up doing is I went through and just did a search for every time the word heart is mentioned in Exodus and then only jotted down the references uh, associated to Pharaoh's heart, either being hardened um, by God, by Pharaoh, or the heart itself. And I'm just going to go through these. I'm going to put them up on the side for those that are watching. Um so Exodus 4.21 is the first mention. God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is future. He's saying in the future, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. 7.3 is the same thing. God says that in the future, I will harden his heart. It's in the future that this will happen. 7.13, we're going to see Pharaoh's heart became hard. Now, it doesn't say whether that was influenced by God or by Pharaoh himself, but it's the heart itself that became rigid and hard. And then we're going to see this 714, we're going to see it again, where Pharaoh's heart was unyielding. Then 722, we're going to see uh, Pharaoh's heart became hard. 815, Pharaoh will harden his own heart. Uh, 832, 
Pharaoh will harden his heart again. Um, excuse me, 8.19, I skipped. Pharaoh's heart was hard. 9.7, uh, Pharaoh's heart was unyielding. 9.12, Exodus chapter 9 is the first time that God actually follows through on this promise that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And this is where you see kind of a change. Um, 9.12, God will intervene and harden Pharaoh's heart. 9.35 is simply a statement that Pharaoh's heart was hard. And then in chapter 10, we have verse 1, verse 20, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 10. All four, one, two, three, four, yeah, all four of those instances are God intervening, stepping in, and hardening Pharaoh's heart. Uh, 14.4, God will, future tense, harden his heart. Um, and then 14.8, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So in all of this, at the beginning, it is Pharaoh himself that hardens his own heart or his heart hardens itself is the idea. So I know going through this, when you first look at that, it's it's almost like, well, who who can then stand a chance? Because if God's going to intervene and, and force us to either believe or not believe, harden someone's heart, did Pharaoh have a choice in that matter? Yeah, absolutely had a choice in that matter. But God wanted to make sure that that the extent of what he had planned was able to play out. Pharaoh's a puppet. Now, at the beginning, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And the idea here, the, the simple explanation that I can give of a great illustration, politics. Politics. There are uh, individuals in the Republican side, friends that I have that are Republicans, that cannot hear a word that a Democrat says without interpreting it to be negative. It's impossible. They, they can't. They, they, their hearts are hard to anything that a person that, that is a Democrat or has liberal point of views says. They just can't hear it. Their heart is hard. And it goes the opposite way as well. I was sitting um, eating uh, uh, lunch as I was reading um, at a cafe and I heard a conversation of uh, women that were just sitting there talking. And they were so, their hearts were so hard against any conservative perspective at all. In their minds, the conservatives are trying to destroy the country. Their hearts are hardened. In the same way, a brilliant illustration um, is a toddler, a two-year-old or a three-year-old who is adamant that that toy is theirs. They've stolen their toy from their brother and now they possess it. It is theirs. They, their heart is hardened that it is theirs. They will not give it up. They're screaming uh, at the top of their lungs, having a temper tantrum. You know, it's ironic. Those, those two comparisons are pretty similar uh, in some instances. Now, uh, in the floor of the Senate, you don't necessarily see temper tantrums. Yeah, you do. You don't see him lying on the ground screaming, but you see pretty close to that, um, that illustration. That's a funny commentary on, on politicians. Um, okay, so continuing on. Um, verse five, I need to go back. Verse five, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So this transitions us, uh, into verse eight, but this question is why does God perform the miracles that he does? 
the signs that he does and then the plagues that he brings, the catastrophe that he brings, the Passover, um, the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire at night, the pillar of smoke by day, clouds, um, pillar of cloud by day. Why does God do all this? He says right here, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch up my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Everything that is being done here by God is done for a reason. One, Pharaoh himself is who is our antagonist. God's going to show Pharaoh who is truly God. It's not Pharaoh. The Egyptians will see who God is. The Egyptian gods, this is, uh, as we will see, God battles against the false gods of the Egyptian gods. And as I will go through, many of the plagues are specifically targeted at Egyptian gods. And we'll talk about those. But then also the Israelites, as we've spoken about, understanding God's true name. Uh, progressive revelation, right? So after Israel sees all of the wonders and are spared from many of them, but the Egyptians are not. After the Israelites see all these amazing wonders and are rescued, their knowledge of who God is, the name of God, is strengthened. Their understanding of who God is is strengthened. And us today reading this story and knowing that this is what happened, this is historical fact. These are things that happened in history and God did them so that Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the Israelites, and us today would know the power of God and his strength and who he is and learn a little bit more about his character. Okay, so now we're going to go into um, and read verse 8 through 13. Exodus 7, verse 8 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh sees says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and sorcerers, and, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Okay, so let's hit on these. This is not. This is a sign. This is not a plague, obviously. So, um, this is also the first sign that um, God gave to Moses. So, Exodus four. Uh, uh, verse three, I think it is, where um, Moses says, basically, what if Israel doesn't believe me when I say that I'm I, that you sent me, that God, you sent me? What if Israel doesn't believe me? And God gives him three signs. The first of those signs is that Moses, his staff, uh, he tosses it down, and God turns it into a snake, and he picks it back up again, and it turns back into his staff. We spoke about this in, when we covered um, Exodus 4, but I want to go through it one more time. Uh, Uraeus. Uraeus is the, uh, it's the symbol 
at the very top of Egypt, uh, of Pharaoh's headdress. On the headdress, you see this Urias, which is the symbol of Wajet. Wajet is the Egyptian goddess. So in essence, th that was placed on Pharaoh's head to show his divinity, his power, his authority, but also the power and divinity of Egypt, the strength of Egypt. So the very first sign that we see of this turning into a snake and then bringing that against and showing Pharaoh this is to show that God has power over creation, but also over the Egyptian gods and false gods, obviously, and over Pharaoh himself. Now, there is a difference here uh, in that we do see... Um, Aaron throws down his staff as opposed to Moses throwing his. Uh, the first few miracles, um, the first three plagues we're going to see, and this sign here, are all done through Aaron's staff. Uh, the last three, uh, seven through nine, are done through Moses' staff. Not that it really matters, it's just uh, uh, something to point out here. Um then you have Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers. We know from 2 Timothy 3.8, Paul tells us the name of the names of these two of these individuals. This is Janus and Jambres uh, are the sorcerers, the magicians that are at Pharaoh's side. If you recall, uh, Genesis 41.8, Genesis 41.8 is in the midst of the story of Joseph, King Pharaoh um, 400 years before this time, King Pharaoh uh, has two dreams and he doesn't know what they mean. And he is seeking uh, interpretation. So he gathers together the sorcerers and the magicians to interpret his dream form and they're not able to. It's the same term that's used here uh, to reference these guys. Um, and they end up being able to do the same sign. They are able to drop down their staffs and have them turn into snakes. Uh, and the question is, is this um, sleight of hand? Is this uh, just a trick that they do uh, to maybe the, they grab snakes to begin with and they somehow had them paralyzed? Uh, and then when they threw them down on the ground, it, it knocked them out of their trance. Um, or, I mean, it, it says, the Bible says, through their secret arts, is it possible that they are able to do this through demonic influence? I don't know. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but we know that the Bible says that they were able to replicate it. And we know they had to have been snakes because we see a powerful verse that you can just skip right over the top of. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. This is a physical representation of the fact that God is more powerful than any other false god, false deity, um, satanic influence, demonic possession, any of those. God is more powerful. And you see a actual representation of the sign and symbol of the uh, Egyptian goddess that is um, swallowed up by God himself in the form of the snake. Uh, 
And then we see Pharaoh's heart became hard. We see that. Um, that Pharaoh, his, e- even though he saw it, he saw the sign, and he just he wouldn't listen. Uh, he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Now let's continue on. Let me just check my notes here. Uh, the Hebrew word swallowed uh, is bale, and it occurs only twice in Exodus. It's here, but then it's also in Exodus 15, 12, in the Song of Moses, in which uh, it is used to reference or describe the Egyptian soldiers that were swallowed by the Nile River. So I think it's interesting that both of these situations, this is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen, that God is going to swallow swallow up um, the strength and might of Egypt in all their uh, greatness, so to speak, uh, with their false gods. So now we're going to read uh, the rest of chapter 7, verse 14 through uh, 24. So join me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness But until until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt over the streams and the canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. So this is the first plague that we're going to see of 10 uh, in the coming chapters. And the significance of this, um, it's the Nile. It is the heart of Egypt. The Nile brings them life. Everything is dependent upon it. It is their greatest source, their greatest resource. Attacking it is attacking Egypt. Egypt and its strength. Um, There's also some specific connections and references. Exodus 1, we see Pharaoh use the Nile as the weapon to kill um, any male Hebrews that are born. 
Moses, for one, was one that was supposed to be drowned in the Nile, but any boy, Israelite that's born, was supposed to be drowned in the Nile. It's also fitting that we see uh, um, a book ending again, as I talked about last time. You see a framing, so to speak, the plague that's brought down here of the water turning into blood uh, and the destruction that's brought with that is a foreshadowing of the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction that will be brought on the Egyptians who try to uh, pass through and chase after the Israelites. There's a, a clear intent here. Um, it's also an attack on Egyptian gods. And I'm going to talk about this uh, with each of the plagues. So in e Egyptian mythology, uh, there are many, many gods. It's a pantheism um, of gods, all these different gods that have these different responsibilities. And looking at all the different gods and what their roles were and their involvement, um, you can look at each of the plagues and you can put there an interpretation of what that plague is challenging in that Egyptian god. It's not in scripture. This is not in scripture, but it is making a connection that in God challenging the Nile and God bringing the gnats, the flies, the frogs, each of these plagues, the plague on the livestock, each of these things that's coming um, is an attack on that item itself, but you can take it as also an attack on the Egyptian God that represented, that was represented by that. Now, I'm putting this here. Uh, it's not specifically stated, and so this is an interpretation. It's not fact. It's just simply stating that um, these gods uh, had involvement with this item. So uh, I did some research, and this is not... Um, uh, I did research online, and the internet is factual, without question. Everything you read on the internet is 100% truth. Uh, no, my greatest source that I used for what I'm going to share is Wikipedia. And Wikipedia can be a source that's influenced by people. It's not, whatever. Uh, I'm going to share, and I could be wrong on some of these things. I did use other sources, um, and I'm going to share what I found. And, and I'm not an Egyptian scholar. I'm not an Egyptian historian. I don't specialize in Egyptian mythology and et cetera. Uh, I'm just going to share what I found. So Happy, H-I-P-I, is the Nile god. Uh, Happy was the god of the annual flooding of the Nile. Uh, some of the titles of Happy were Lord of the Fish and Birds of the Marshes and Lord of the River Bringing Vegetation. So an attack on the Nile is an attack on Happy. And I, I'm probably not pronouncing that. He's a happy god. Uh, the next one is Kanum. And Kanum is the guardian of the Nile or god of the source of the Nile. Uh, Kanum was one of the earliest known Egyptian deities, originally the god of the source of the Nile. Since the annual flooding of the Nile brought with it silt and clay and its waters brought life to its surroundings, he was thought to be the creator of the bodies of human children, which he made at a potter's wheel from clay and placed in their mother's wombs. He was later described as having molded other deities, and he had the title uh, Divine Potter and Lord of Created Things from himself. Kanum was usually depicted with the head of a ram. Uh, 
Isis is a more well-known name, goddess of the Nile. Now that name, goddess of the Nile, um, I found in one source, but I didn't find it in the other. So I don't know if Isis is known as the goddess of the Nile. There's really no other reference to the Nile um, related with Isis that I could find. Isis is a major goddess in ancient Egypt. She was believed to help the dead enter the afterlife. She was also considered the divine mother of Pharaoh. That's a huge connection, the divine mother of Pharaoh. Her maternal aid was invoked in healing spells to benefit ordinary people. I found two images that depict Isis in a maternal motherly role, uh, one where she is nursing and the other where the king or Pharaoh is sitting on her lap. Osiris is Isis's husband. He was lord of the dead and of rebirth, often shown with green skin, which symbolizes rebirth. Uh, he was believed to be reborn each year when the Nile flooded. That's the reference to o Osiris uh, in correlation to the Nile. Osiris is the mythological father of the god Horus, whose conception is described in the Osiris myth, a central myth in ancient Egyptian belief. The myth describes Osiris as having been killed by his brother Set, who wanted Osiris's throne. His wife Isis finds the body of Osiris and hides it in the reeds of the Nile, where it is found and dismembered by Set. Isis retrieves and joins the fragmented pieces of Osiris, then briefly revives him by use of magic. This spell gives her time to become pregnant by Osiris. Isis later gives birth to Horus. Since Horus was born after Osiris's resurrection, Horus became thought of as a representative or representation of new beginnings and the vanquisher of the usurper Set. Because of his death and resurrection, Osiris was associated with the flooding and retreating of the Nile and thus with the yearly growth and death of crops along the Nile Valley. Now, I don't know for certain if God, um, when he decided to have the first plague be turning the Nile uh, into blood, if he was specifically targeting these gods, but the Egyptians would have seen these gods as being affected by this. And so it's attacking their mythology and their false gods in that sense, if that makes sense. Um, and we see a similar verse to what we read before, Exodus 7, 17. By this you will know that I am the Lord. These items, these things that he's doing, he is showing his greatness. So now uh, to wrap up, did this really happen? Did Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and throw down a piece of wood, a staff, and have it turn into a snake? Did Aaron touch the waters of the Nile in front of Pharaoh and have them instantaneously changed into blood? I believe that they did. I am a Bible literalist. Um, that does not mean that you should, that I believe you should take every word literally. What I mean by that is, is there's time at which um, parables are used and hyperbole is used and figurative speech is used. Uh, but when the Bible says that something happened, I believe that that happened. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. That doesn't mean that I believe that the text we have today is without error. What that does mean is, is that the original 
autographs, the original manuscripts that were written, inspired by God and written by the original uh, 40 plus authors that wrote the 66 books, that is without error. Now, we do have translation, translation issues and that I've discussed before. At the end, I'll put a, a video in the bottom right uh, where I discuss why we have different translations of our Bible. English is totally different than ancient biblical Hebrew. It's a completely different language. And there's different phrases, different ways people say things. And so we need to, to read them to discern how properly to translate that. That's why you have so many different translations. There's also thousands of years of manuscripts. We have so many manuscripts and they go back older and older and older. We're getting more and more ancient manuscripts. That's where textual criticism comes in. I will put a video, uh, let's put it in the top right at the end of this, for those that are watching on YouTube, of an interview that I did on Apostle Talk with Peter Gurry, Dr. Peter Gurry, who is a textual critic. That talks about how we can trust in our scriptures being um, from God. But are there mistakes? Yeah, there are thousands of little tiny nuances of um, uh, small little things of A's versus ums versus thes. And I, I explain in that video, we talk about the fact that there are minuscule differences over thousands of years of manuscripts, um, seeing the translations. I'm going way too long on this, but this is God's word. And I do believe that if it says that the waters of the Nile were turned into blood, they were turned into blood. Now, here is a question. You have what are considered the naturalistic approach to the... Um, to the plagues, to the things that happened. Could God have used nature to bring about these things? Yeah, yeah, absolutely he could have. I'm not, I'm not saying that um, God is limited in any way whatsoever in what powers he uses to bring about these plagues from happening. I'm going to read from um, Kenneth Baker, um, Barker, I always do that, Barker, the Expositor's Bible Commentary. This is a bridge edition of the Old Testament. Some scholars suggest that since all the plagues followed a natural cycle and all happened in one year, this first plague could be connected with the, an annual, unusual high Nile flooding in July and August. So one perspective is, is that all of these things happen naturally. It's the naturalistic perspective. And so what they're saying is, is that the Nile floods every year. And so this could have been an unusual... Um, high flooding. The sources for the Nile uh, are the uh, equatorial rains that fill the White Nile, which originates in the East Central Africa, present-day Uganda, and flows sluggishly through swamps in eastern Sudan and the Blue Nile and the Atbara River, which both fill with melting snow from the mountains and become raging torrents filled with tons of red soil from the basins of both these rivers. The higher the flooding, the deeper the color of the red waters. In addition to this dust coloration, a type of algae known as flagellites comes from the Sudan swamps and Lake Tana along the White Nile, which produces the stench and the deadly fluctuation in the oxygen level of the river that proves to be so fatal to the fish. So this is a natural per, uh, perspective of how God could have changed the Nile um, into what appeared to be blood. There is a verse, I believe it's in Revelation, um, where 
the moon turned to blood. It means that the moon turned red. It's, it, it's not saying literally that the moon turned into blood. It means it became as red as blood, as a figure. So is this a figure of speech where the Nile turned into, it just turned very red? Well, the one thing that you can't get away from is the instantaneousness. I don't think that's a word. The instantaneous uh, manner in which this happened. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. This is verse 20. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. I don't see how you could see you use the natural argument for this. Blood was everywhere, including uh, wood and stone vessels. Everything that had been drawn, all the water that had been drawn from the Nile turned into blood instantaneously. You could make the argument that it's possible that God used... Um, he, he, he used uh, fish to uh, uh, drum up the silt from the bottom and that, that turned it red and then that brought out these uh, algae, whatever. That, that, but how could that happen instantaneously? Yes, God could influence the fish to do this, but to have it also be every vessel, I believe that this is exactly what happened. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created that's, that's it. If you can't get past Genesis 1 and the fact that in the beginning was God, he was preeminent over everything, and then he created through speaking. He created. If you believe that, then is it possible that he could instantaneously turn hydrogen, H2O, uh, into blood? Yeah. Yes, he can. He's God. He's able to do this. If you are stuck on this uh, in the fact that, well, science can't prove this today, who is God and who are you? That's my challenge. That's my challenge and the takeaway of this. Do you question whether God has the capability of doing this? And if you question that, do you question if God has the capability of changing you, of helping you, of, of bringing about change in your life? Do you believe that God wants to help you become a better version of yourself? Do you believe that God wants to help you get over that addiction? Do you believe that God wants to help change your heart to be more like him? We talked about it before with Moses representing God to Pharaoh. Do you believe that God has the capability to change you to be a better reflection of Christ? Do you believe that the work that Christ did on the cross was enough to atone for every sin you've ever committed and every sin and screw up you're going to commit in the future so that when God looks at you, he sees you clean, restored, without sin? I do. I most certainly do. And I love reading these stories and hearing this and trying to picture the terror of that moment when instantly everything turned to blood. It's amazing stuff. Absolutely phenomenal, amazing stuff. God exists and shows us that he does through these uh, miraculous plagues. 
And he shows that to the Egyptians. He shows it to Pharaoh. He shows it to the Egyptian false gods. And he shows it to the Israelites. But we reading it today, he's showing it to us. God is a gentleman in the sense that he doesn't force himself on us today. He has, through his word, given us his character. Uh, we are able to read his word and get a word into our life and, and be able to see who he is and what he desires from us. But he doesn't force himself on us. He gives us that choice of free will to decide today if we're going to believe that he has the capability of doing these things that he says in this book or if he doesn't. And that's a question you got to answer for yourself. I love you guys, and I will see you next week as we dig into uh, two or three uh, of the next coming plagues. We're going to hit on the gnats and the flies, and we'll see how far we get. Have a good week.